Good morning, Brian Bible Church. It's a joy uh, to take the pulpit for one last time before we uh, load up that Penske. I'll need your help Monday, <laughs> next week. We'll, we'll give you plenty of time on the email to put that together. But uh, this morning is about fellowship. It's about uh, farewells. It's about goodbyes. And so uh, get your tissues. Uh, use your neighbor's sleeve if you need to. Uh, we're going to head down that road. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says this of fellowship. He says, some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. And that's what we do here at Berean Bible Church. There's many of us that understand what this means all too well when we congregate over many tables at In-N-Out Burger so that we can dine on cheese and meat. We do this on Sunday nights regularly. We also like to watch our kids racing on wheeled vehicles around the Hanson Tennis Court just down the street, and we do this also together. Berean Bible Church, as long as we've known it for three years, is a church that loves to get together. Friendship, love, and affection for each other at this church is so rich and so deep. And I want to get to the reasons why. That's what we're going to head to today. Why is that the case here? English Puritan Thomas Watson says this of friendship. He says, friendship is the marriage of affections. Friendship is the marriage of affections. And truly, our, fe- our friendship is so strong because our affection is so uniquely tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where our friendship stems from. The Bible shows us great friendships where God and his purposes anchor relationship. It gives you meaning, centrality, and purpose to all that you do with this life. And even as you saw the words on the screen, you know that we have a promised land to which we are bound to go. Great friendships in the Bible are anchored in these things. The strength of these relationships in the Bible is often found when friends have to part ways. Such is the case in one of the greatest friendships that the Bible presents to us, that of David and Jonathan. They should have been enemies because they were rivals for the throne of Israel after King Saul. Jonathan being Saul's son, David being the Lord's anointed, and yet the Bible says Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. These were warriors. They had each made a covenant with each other to love, to serve, to care for each other and each other's families. This covenant caused Jonathan to protect David when Saul wanted to kill David and when Saul wanted to enthrone Jonathan. One night, David needed to flee for safety from King Saul. And the Bible records the tenderness of the departure in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 41. David and Jonathan kissed each other and wept together. And David wept all the more. And Jonathan said to David, go in safety. The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. These warriors had friendship, love, and affection that was not temporal. It was not time-bound to this finite life on earth. They had something that was eternal, that transcended this world. They had a connection because they knew the one true God of heaven. And it really came through in their parting, didn't it? Their great goodbye was founded in their certainty in the Lord's ability and their confidence in each other's love. Saying goodbye is often done over simple platitudes, happy, warm, fuzzy thoughts. You know what these sound like. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened, Dr. Seuss. There are far better things ahead than we ever leave behind, C.S. Lewis. The pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again, Charles Dickens. Where these do contain truth, they are lacking in certainty and strength. We find ourselves at a season of farewell, a season of goodbye, where parting will be sweet sorrow. And I want us to do goodbye well as a church. We can have all the tears of David and Jonathan. I'm not opposed to that at all. I'm I'm prepared for it. The, The shoulders are ready to go. Extra padding there. So we can do that. 
After all, this is the kind of fellowship and love and affection that we've come to know here at Berean Bible Church. In order to do goodbye well, let's look to Paul's closing of his letter in the Thessalonians. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We'll start in chapter 1. And what I want to show you is that believers say goodbye best when they fix their thoughts on two foundations that make for flawless fellowship. Just like David and Jonathan, Paul's parting words are fixed on God's certain ability and confidence in the brother's love. Paul offers a grand and gracious goodbye to the Thessalonians because his fellowship was fixed on these two foundations. So you're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and what do I need to tell you about the Thessalonian church? You need to understand that Paul loved this church. It is hard to stress or emphasize enough the great love that Paul had for the Thessalonians. He established this church himself on his second missionary journey in 50 AD. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. Thessalonica, the church, is in Greece. It's a port city on the eastern seaboard, and as such, it had a great commercial center. An economic outpost is what it was. And what happens when you have many products, many people, and many dollars flowing through one central area? Well, think of Los Angeles or New York or Seattle. You have rampant immorality. And that's what Thessalonica had. But John MacArthur says the Thessalonian church was an island of purity on a sea of paganism. Well, how do you get to that? Where does the island of purity come from? Well, first, you have to understand the foundation of this church, salvation. You get to an island of purity and salvation. Paul got there and he immediately goes to the synagogue and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though you are dead in your transgressions and sin, God himself left heaven, came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, died a horrible sinner's death on a cross so that you could be in heaven forever with God. If you would do this one thing, believe that that's exactly what God did. Believe. These people did. Both Jews and Greeks, they believed. Paul's preaching opened the hearts of men and women. Second, then, for this island of purity to be created came sanctification. You see, after salvation, God's not done with you, and he wasn't done with the Thessalonians. He sanctified them. He set them apart unto righteousness, and they gained a regional reputation for biblical love and purity. We're going to read about how the extent of that reputation. We'll read it here. Listen to how Paul describes the growth of godliness of the Thessalonian church in chapter 1. Verses 6 through 10, Paul says this of the Thessalonians, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have nothing to say, no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You see, their salvation was quick. It came in power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they were in hot pursuit of righteousness. Not only had they become a model for the pursuit of righteousness, they had become very dear to Paul. Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 20, you can see it in the text there. He says of them, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, Paul indicates his great desire to go see them again physically in person. And in chapter 4, verse 9, if you'll look there with me, we see what Paul thought about their love. He says to them, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. There reputation preceded them for love. Paul loved this church. He knew of her faith, her love, her joy, her trials, burdens, and challenges. There is a distinct intimacy that you can see and feel and perceive off the text of this page of joy and sweet fellowship woven into the fabric of this epistle, this letter, which is so clear a picture of flawless fellowship. There's a friendship and affection that Paul shares with these people 
that is profound. And the words of Scripture bear that out. Paul's own actions bear that out. Is it a wonder to you why I chose to preach from this text today? After founding the church in AD 50, he would go into Corinth and he would write two letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He would go back to visit and only get a chance to twice in AD 53 before Paul closes this first letter with great grace for these folks. I want you to hear a sampling of the purpose of his writing. We're going to get to his closing, but here's a sample of what you missed in his writing. He taught them about Christian living. He taught them about life in the church. He taught them about defending faith and answering allegations about the ministry. He needed to share with them a word that he had received from the Lord about the rapture of the church, which we sang about earlier, and raising the dead and the living to be with Christ in the cloud. He wrote about joy, encouragement, and comfort for his dear relatives. Having this context, read with me Paul's grand and gracious goodbye. This is his signing off in chapter 5. And let's discuss what makes this farewell, this signing off, so rich in love and full of grace. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, reading from verses 23 to 28. Read along with me now. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is true love and genuine delight. It's time to sign off, to part ways, to say farewell and wish these people love and peace. And Paul hits a home run, as it were, with this exit. This is a grand Exit. This is a grand goodbye and filled with grace. In Paul's grand and gracious goodbye, we see these two foundations of flawless fellowship. What made their fellowship so flawless? Well, again, here at the close of Paul's letter, we see bedrock. We see foundation stone for relationships. Foundation stone. We're at the bottom of relationships that matter with these believers in Thessalonica when we read these verses from Paul. There are two foundations of flawless fellowship which give grace at the time of goodbye. We need to look at them closely because we are in a season of farewell here at Berean Bible Church. As mentioned earlier, my family, the Jones family, has been called to ministry in Spokane, Washington. We are packed and and set to drive away on Tuesday, June 16th. In our hearts, selfishly, we would love to stay. Many of you are looking at me, what kind of fool are you to leave here? You're right. I agree with you. I understand what you're saying. But we know that the Lord has a calling set on to us. We see it. When you see it, you have to obey, do you not? So that brings us to a question. How do you give grace at goodbye? What last words do you leave with dear friends to comfort and encourage? What two foundations comfort a flawless fellowship at the time of farewell? Number one, certainty in God's ability. Certainty in God's ability. Number two, confidence in the brother's love. Confidence in the brother's love. These two things, certainty in God's ability and confidence in the brother's love, Paul's last words are anchored in these relational foundation stones, and they tell us about the flawless, whole, and complete relationship that Paul shared with them in Christian love. My heart's desire is to share these two foundations with you, Berean Bible Church, because my heart is filled with love for this congregation, for each and every one of you that I've had a chance to minister to for the past three years just like Paul's heart was filled with love for the Thessalonians. 
On behalf of my whole family, we love you. I don't want them to miss out. We love you. (laughs) We love all of you. Truly, our fellowship and friendship has been full, complete, lacking in nothing. And it will be made flawless when we meet with Christ in the clouds, will it not? Let's look today at the first foundation of flawless fellowship. It is, number one in your notes, certainty in God's ability. And where do we see certainty in God's ability from the text? Well, I would tell you there are three certainties about God's ability in the text that are foundational to fellowship. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again, and I want to show you these three certainties about God. Paul's prayer here reveals what he believes about God and what he knows they know about God. Verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he is able to bring it to pass. This is a prayer as indicated by the word may, which comes from the optative mood of this verb. And I know that means nothing to you, but you can go optative or you can go subjunctive. And that presents a dilemma for us because I told you we're looking for certainty in God's ability. And as soon as you introduce the word may, you've run into a challenge. You've got a problem on your hands. And I want you to think about this with me because we need to contend with this problem. Is it really a problem? How should we understand the word may? The nature of the prayer and the use of the word may indicate hypothetical action, potential action, probable action. So is Paul really praying along these lines? Is he saying, God, if you are able, perhaps it would be a good thing to sanctify the brothers. Is Paul praying, God, without violating their own free will, do a powerful work to set them apart uh, probably sometime later? He's not praying this way at all. The the use of the word may here is expressing hope, not apprehension. This prayer is focused on what is certain about the future, not what is probable. It is a prayer that perfectly honors God and the thought from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where the author says, "Now Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Did you hear that? Assurance of things hoped for. The conviction... Of things not seen. That's how Paul is praying. This prayer is loaded with love of the saints and the power of God. It is entirely what we might call a Calvinistic prayer because it knows the sovereignty of God. Paul emphatically calls God to set the saints entirely apart, wholly and completely apart, and in so doing, Paul establishes certainty in God's ability as a foundation for flawless fellowship. He is going to sign off to say goodbye, and he'll do it on this foundation stone, that God is the one who has to sanctify you, that he has to act on you in a way that you just don't want to. I love this about Berean Bible Church. We don't wrestle and argue about the sovereignty of God in this church, about his sovereignty and salvation, about his sovereignty and sanctification. We spell it out in our doctrinal statement. We preach it from the scriptures. We live and love each other in light of God's sovereign power over the whole of our lives. And we know that Paul is certain that God will sanctify the Thessalonians. God will do it. Paul is certain of number one in your notes as you sit underneath the certainty of God's ability. This first certainty that God sanctifies believers. You want to know something about God? You want to know certainties about God that hold relationships together? Know this. God is the agent of sanctification. He does the work himself. He does a work that you won't choose to do because he crushes hearts and he crushes pride. What is sanctification? Sanctification is setting apart a person unto holiness. It is being brought into conformity to the person and likeness of God. In fact, his son the Lord Jesus Christ. God allows nothing into his presence except that it is holy and pure. 
And he says as much when he says in the scriptures, be holy as I am holy, as was recorded by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He will allow nothing in his presence to corrupt him. God takes greater effort to cleanse his heaven than the whole world has taken to cleanse itself of COVID-19. Therefore, all believers in Jesus Christ must be set apart, sanctified, pure, clean, perfect. Are you going to do that? Who's got the power? Sanctification is rightly understood to happen in three ways in the life of a believer. Number one, sanctification happens at the moment of salvation. You are set apart unto holiness at the moment that God justifies you. It is a legal declaration, a declaration set on you by God that says you, in my sight, are righteous. God is the maker of righteousness, and he's the deliverer of that onto your head. Are you a believer in Christ in here today? You're righteous. God's looking at you now, and you're righteous in his sight because he made you that way. This is positional sanctification. You know, for three years, I have read membership applications of every believer that's ever come into this church. And what a joy. Because the believers that come to this church, when they fill out the membership application for me that I get a chance to read, I see that you know justification. You know the work that God did on you that you couldn't have ever done yourself. This is positional sanctification. After positional sanctification, second... There is progressive sanctification because in those membership applications also is the case that there's an acknowledgement of sin, that I'm not perfect, that there's something messed up with me and I need fixing. And that's why I came to this hospital here. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We know that very well. So daily God is calling us. And causing us to be conformed to the image of his son through dying to self, killing sinful thoughts and patterns and habits, and living unto righteousness. Doing righteousness. Doing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Boy, this church is a church that loves the doing of the fruit of the Spirit. Which is faithfulness, gentleness, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control. Against those things, there is no law that will stop you. Do as much of those as you'd like. That's progressive sanctification. And then third is perfect sanctification. And guess what is happening at perfect sanctification? How do you get to that point? Well, that happens when you die. And your flesh dies and its corruption is left here on the earth to be burned up and consumed. And you are taken to heaven to receive a glorified body in which you will live forever. In perfection, in the presence of God. Do you like the sound of that? So do I. That's sanctification. Do you rejoice at sanctification? When I'm preaching through this, I I just, I love to preach through this. This makes sense. If you know how broken you are as a human being, everything that I just said should make sense to you. Because you know that you would never start this work inside of your own heart. But God can. He can. Because just like the the, the baby in the arms of a mother, the mother knows what's best for the child. And God made you. And he knows that he needs to put onto your wicked self justification. And then he needs to put onto yourself sanctification. And finally, because you could never do this yourself, he is going to glorify you in heaven forever and cause you to be perfect in his sight. It's all God. From the start to the middle to the end. What part did you play? You had faith to know that this meant everything it said. Now, somebody should say amen to that. <laughs> I love this about Berean Bible Church. We understand sanctification. We're doing it together. We rejoice at sanctification. You see all that's going on in the world around you. You know the anger and frustration that gets piled up in your own heart and all the complaining that you do in your own heart. You can't get groceries without wearing your mask. You get stuck behind social justice demonstrators on the freeway blocking your drive home for hours. I, I know you're the, the discontentment in your own heart. I get it. The circumstances of life are causing you to conform your mind to eternal things, not temporal things. And in so doing... Through your circumstances, through the power of his word, and through the power of his spirit, he is making you more like his son every day. Because his son perfectly glorified him.
the picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, is glory to God. Because in it, the perfect one died for his enemies. That's glorious. This is sanctification. The glory of God to conform us to the image of his son. Which sanctification does Paul have in view in verse 23? Positional, progressive, or perfect? Well, both. Both progressive and perfect sanctification. We're going to split this up and look at both. How do you suppose that sanctification will be accomplished? Verse 23 tells you God himself will do it. God will leave nothing to random chance process. He, he knows you entirely. And Paul calls on God to sanctify you completely. There can be no mistakes in this process. You will not be left to your own devices. God himself emphatically will do it to you. And please do not confuse what I'm saying with what other Christians in our community will say. There are those that run around in our circles that will talk about, let go and let God. And that's not what I'm saying to you at all. Because if you're a Calvinist, if you're a Bible believer, if you read the word of God and you have been saved and sanctified, you know that there are commands of God in the Bible for you. You know Jesus' words in John 14, 15 when he said, if you love me, you will keep. That's right. My commandments. And so you devour the scriptures like a true Berean, and you come up with what those commandments are. And it's your joy and delight of your life to live those out because you know responsibility, personal responsibility. That's something that's lacking in our world today, isn't it? People taking personal responsibility. John 14, 15. But we're also those that search the scripture, and we know this, Philippians 2, 12. We're called in the scriptures to work out our salvation. You! Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we also know verse 13. Don't ever let someone do this with you. Whenever someone quotes a Bible verse to you, do me this favor. Always read the three verses before and the three verses after. I'm just saying, it'll clear up a whole bunch of things in your mind if you just read the three before and the three after. Because here we find out that not only does the Bible tell you personal responsibility, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 13, you get some real help. Paul says to the Philippians, it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're not alone. When he changes you, he radically changes you, and he gives you his power to live in this life. You see, before he applied salvation to us and opened our eyes, we were only continually enemies of his, rejecting him. And as such, he has shown us all our brokenness and our frailty and our inability. He has shown us our desire to live independently, And he has shown us that we do not stand except that he holds us in the palm of his right hand. His strong and powerful right hand. God is the great reconciler, the one who broke through your hostility to him, created by your sin, and has brought peace to you through the death of his son. Paul is certain that the God who owns peace will absolutely, unquestionably sanctify you. Not a little bit but entirely, perfectly, completely. This is the first certainty in God's ability that God will sanctify. The second flows naturally from that. The second certainty in God's ability is that God preserves believers. Number two, the second certainty in God's ability is that God preserves believers. He sanctifies and he preserves. It is the case that uh, Doc Bernstein serves ice cream over here in the village. If you go there and you pay that price, the first scoop costs you a whole bunch of money. And grandpa will take care of it. Don't worry. Grandpa wants you to have the scoop. But you know what grandpa will also do? Because the little kid says, can I have two scoops, grandpa? It's good ice cream. You're going to ask for the second one. And when he does, is grandpa going to pay up? It's only two bucks more. You already paid ten. (laughs) Uh, Of course. Grandpa's going to come to the table with the extra scoop. So too, Paul here prays for a second scoop of God's sovereign power. Did you have enough with God's first scoop of sovereign power that he's the one who sanctifies We'll saddle up for the next one. God preserves you as well. You see this in the second half of verse 23. He prays, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the verb tense here is passive. And you understand that passive is not active. Passive is something that is happening to you. Again, something that's happening on you. You can't help this. It's like the the business owners that are having their businesses smashed. Something's coming at them. They can't stop it. That's passive. You're receiving something. Brothers and sisters, we have seen the preservation of God 
in our midst already. For years, I've seen this. You know, one brother in our congregation, he overcame double vision. Another brother has been sustained through cancer. Another brother was praying for a bride to come to his direction. And we've seen that multiple times, the Lord putting people together. Others have prayed for surgeries. Others have prayed for successful deliveries of babies. Others have prayed for work, and others have prayed for finances. We have seen preservation, have we not, Ruth Ann? Not by the hands of men, never one time, but by the strength of God. And if he cares for the details of the life that you live now, how much more is he going to be able to preserve your life all the way to the end, even into glory? How much more? It is the height of pride and vanity that causes us to think that we wage war in this life on our own. We are nothing. Oh, I just needed to exhale. Because truly we're nothing but shards of pottery. That's what your life is. Your your broken shards of pottery that the maker of the universe has lifted up off the ground and stitched back together powerfully and perfectly. And it's only in his power to hold your broken shard life of pottery together that he chooses to make something out of it of honor. And into you, he puts rivers of living water out of heaven, from Christ out of heaven, down into you as the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And now filled with rivers of living water, your broken pottery shard life can pour water, rivers of living water all over everybody that lives near you. Paul is looking to the future and declaring he knows what God will do before it is done. He can see the future. God will preserve you fully, completely. He says, without blame. Boy, if you've come here this morning and your conscience is heavy because you don't know God, understand what we're saying to everybody in this room. That the God of heaven knows your conscience because he gave it to you. He wants you to consider everything that he's ever said. He wants your conscience piercing you and pricking you to know him, to understand him, because he knows your life is sinful, and your conscience tells you that. And what Romans 8.1 says is, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that you can have an existence without blame, guilt, shame, for anything that's ever transpired in your life if you know the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know that today? Did you need to hear that today? Without blame. You all need to exhale. Without blame. That's where you will be with Christ. Without blame. Paul prays that this will happen. In the whole of your being. He says in spirit and soul and body, these terms are stacked for emphasis. Paul is not describing the human constitution here. In his prayer, you're not a three-part being. Paul has made clear elsewhere in Scripture that you are a two-part being, spirit and body. Where do we get that understanding? Galatians 5, Romans 7. They talk about the war that happens between the two where you know what to do is right, but your flesh wants to do what is wrong. You're a two-part person. Jesus taught the same when he said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Soul and spirit, brothers and sisters, are interchangeable terms. And Paul is stacking them up here for the purpose of emphasis. And you can see his emphasis also comes in the term complete. And this other term, entire. Paul has in his mind a view of the wholeness of your person, of the wholeness of this congregation of the Thessalonians. He knows where they will be, when they will be there, and he knows what it will look like. How preserved they will be. He can see it in his mind's eye. He's he's got a view toward their wholeness. Preservation will passively happen to the whole of your being because God is able God's ability, your spirit and body, you will certainly be preserved because God is able. And God has a plan for when this will happen, Paul says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the plan for when. 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What mean these words? What mean these words? Turn back. Chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4, verse 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. The Greek word here in our text is the word parousia, for coming, the word coming, which also means presence or appearing. Coming, presence, appearing. It is used by Paul four times in the letter to the Thessalonians, making it a, a significant theme. Paul had received a word from the Lord. This is divine and special, specific revelation from God to Paul, which was purposeful and timely to combat error and laziness in the church on the part of some. You see, some had believed that the second coming of Jesus Christ had already happened, and they were concerned for themselves. Did I miss it? Still others thought that the return was imminent, and so they stopped working which I believe some of us in the last couple of months have stopped working because it looks like the same thing's going on now. Don't stop working. Go back to work. Still others were concerned that when Christ came again, the dead would miss out on seeing the return. What about the dead? I got family. They passed away. Are they going to see Jesus come as well? I would hope that for them. Clarity. Clarity. The word of the Lord came to Paul with great clarity. Verse 15 of chapter 4. For this we say to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be always with the Lord, therefore Comfort one another with these words. I'd love to share that with you today because I know that if we never see each other again in this life, I know exactly where I'll see you. I'll see you in the cloud. With this special divine revelation from God, Paul can answer their concerns. First, the second coming hasn't happened. You didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. It hasn't happened. Second, specific signs, even specific sounds, will accompany his return and all Believers, dead and alive, will go. So get back to work. Stop being lazy. Third, don't worry about brothers who have died. They get the privilege of rising first. This is a picture of the rapture. Just like Enoch and Elijah were pulled out of this world before they died, so too many believers in Jesus Christ will be taken up from this world yet as they live. Do we know the date of the second coming of Christ in the air? Wouldn't you like to? Of course you don't have that date. That's only known by the Father who's in heaven. But we have the certainty that this will happen. And just as Paul does, this event, Paul knows this event is still future, but we have that as a certainty that it's coming. He also knows that believers in Jesus Christ will be preserved unto that day. And we can pray to that end for one another. We can pray that it will come to pass because we know with certainty that it will. What makes it such a certainty? God is faithful. God is faithful. We see this as a third certainty in God's ability in the text. The third certainty of God's ability in the text is that God is faithful. Paul turns from what God is able to do to God's character, the character of God, his nature. And he says, God is faithful. You know, we have a lot of dog lovers at Berean Bible Church. Don't raise your hand if you love your dog. I already know you. I know that you have your dog, and you love that dog. That's just wonderful. Dogs are our friends, and they're faithful for many reasons. From barking at strangers to licking our face to needing to take a walk, man's best friend is best friend because he's faithful. Infinitely more faithful is the Lord our God. Faithful means loyal, constant, steadfast, unwavering, dedicated, and true. And in this simple statement, Paul seeks to back up the claims of his prayer. He says, faithful, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. This word calls, calling, kaleo, this is a word that, that speaks of God's election, his salvation being placed on you. He's saying here, in other words, let me tell you about your salvation the God who called you into this free salvation that he offers through his grace, that God who did that to you, he is loyal 
dedicated, committed in ways that you cannot understand. But let me try to help you with this further. He says, he called you. He justified you. He sanctified you, is sanctifying you, and will preserve you all the way until you are in glory with him forever, where he will perfect you. He will do it, he says. He will make it happen. He will bring it to pass. This is not a your strength deal. Boy, there's so much hope in that. Don't you just love the work of God? Boy, there are some people that say that you can lose your salvation. Does this sound like something that can be lost? You didn't even choose to get it. He was the one that placed it onto you. This is certainty. And it's so easy for Paul to make the argument because the greatest thing that ever happened to you in your life is salvation If God can call you out of your sin and your wickedness and your rebellion to him to the pursuit of his son and the pursuit of righteousness on his terms, if he can do that, if he has that power, what power over you does he not have? Do you see the strength of the argument? It is arguing from the lesser to the greater. It is certain for Paul that those who are called are justified, sanctified, and preserved to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when they will be found in glory. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says as much. Last week, Pastor Eric preached on biblical parenting. Listen to the message. It was quite a spanking. You need it because we are those who make children. And our efforts to raise those children are so infinitely lacking. We are not perfecting our children because you can't. Not the case with our Father in heaven. Not the case with him. He is perfecting us unto his liking. Paul is certain of God's ability And in this great and gracious goodbye prayer, Paul leans heavily on this foundation that God is able. You're going to have a good going away party, going to good good farewell. Lean on this certainty. God is faithful. God is able. Lean on this. He says in his prayer, I'm certain about what God is going to do through you. He says to these Thessalonians, I know your calling. I know your salvation. I know your love. And I know with certainty when and where we will meet again. How did Paul give a great and gracious goodbye? He focused his thoughts on this foundation that God is certain in his abilities. That Paul is certain in God's abilities. And he prayed the certainty of God's ability on the Thessalonians. And I would charge you to do the same. When departing, when saying farewell, do you pray sanctification and preservation on your friends? Can you pray sanctification and preservation on your friends? Should you pray Sanctification and preservation on your friends? Who are you praying to? Who are you praying to? The God who is able. So pray those prayers. They're very Calvinistic of you. And I love them. Because they declare the sovereignty of God over the top of your friend's free will. How much do you want that for your parents? How much do you want that for your brother and sister? How much do you want that for your kids? You pray the sovereignty and power of God. Because he is able. He is able over the top of the free will of men. Pray for God's blessing, love, and grace to follow them continually. And pray with certainty in God's ability to powerfully work through all of your dear friends until you see them again at the rapture. The first foundation for a flawless fellowship like that of Paul's with the Thessalonians is certainty in God's ability. And that is what we share here at Berean Bible Church. That's point number one in your notes i got a whole other 45 minutes set in front of me for point number two. You ready? <laughs> the second foundation for a flawless fellowship is this. Confidence in the brother's love. Confidence in the brother's love. Paul is speaking confidence in the brother's love in making these final commands that we see in this passage. This is a very personal text. And I want to I go someplace that's personal with you. I want to pull your minds into a place where where you might not have confidence in a brother's love. How many of you have broken relationships with family members? Don't don't raise your hands. I didn't see. I didn't see. I didn't see. I already know. I already know. We already talked. I know that you have broken relationships with family members, many, from parents to siblings to children. Let me explain why that happens. It happens because there is no confidence in your love for them or in their love for you. It happens because relationships are broken. They are loveless. Relationships are loveless. They are broken because of bad and failed expectations. And they are only healed when you, a true believer in Jesus Christ, filled up from heaven with all that God has to give you through the power of his spirit, 
when you choose to love others first, even when they are unlovely. I'm not asking you to tell me the last time that someone near you was unlovely to you. Probably yesterday. You must choose to risk giving love and being rejected. You must set expectations in your mind that are biblical that think the best of your family member and put them in a position for relational success with you. You know, a simple example would be this. People need to eat often. And so make a nice meal at your house and take it to them and drop it off. Or ask them to join you for a meal. Use this time intentionally to ask questions about their life. How are they doing with COVID? This is a great time to ask someone out for lunch. Just to get an understanding of how they're dealing with COVID. Just ask the question. How are you dealing with the riots? How is work? Is it affecting your job? How is your heart? Ask questions. Set then the simple expectation in your mind that such an activity, restoring relationships, giving love, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your time and it's going to cost you your money. And it will make demands of you, demands of your love and your grace and your patience and your long-suffering. You get a chance to put on the display all the power of the Holy Spirit, just as I've shared with you. And then you report to your pastor. I'm telling you, you report to your pastor. So email me, send me a text. I'll get you that later. Make sure that you contact your pastor. Let him know how it went. How did it go when you reached out to your family member? I want to hear personally. I've been overjoyed at seeing the hand of the Lord in working through relationships to do restoration. It would be a joy when I look to regularly revisit with you that you share with me about relational successes and healings because I'm confident in your love and your ability to heal those relationships. Let's look at at Paul's confidence. Let's look at Paul's demonstration of love. Paul shows his love in confidence toward the brothers that he shows in giving them these commands. His relationship with the Thessalonians is saturated with love, just like the freshly cut fries at In-N-Out are saturated with 100% sunflower oil. Where do you see this, this confidence in the brothers' love in the text? We see confidence in the Thessalonians in three commands that he gives to them, verses 25 to 27. What commands... Show confidence in the love of these Thessalonians brothers. Command number one, brothers pray. Verse 25, he says four words, brethren, pray for us. Paul uses the word brothers 19 times in this letter. And yet right here is the only time that he sticks brethren, Adelphos. He sticks it first in this sentence. Why did he do that? To draw emphasis to show them he's making a command, a demand on them. He wants prayer. This is very loving and humble of Paul. First, it says that he is communicating to them a need. You know, it is is the case that you are needy people. And Paul is saying to them, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I still have needs, and you can help me with that. And that's what he says. Second, he's asking for their help and assistance. When someone asks you for help and assistance, it shows a level of humility. Third, he is asking them because of his love for them. And fourth, he is asking because he knows their love for him. This is not a loveless relationship. This is a love saturated. This is a relationship saturated in love. This is what what it takes to build a flawless relationship. It takes confidence in the love of the others, in the love of other believers. This confidence says, they have my back. It's, It's love that says, I can trust you with my prayer request, things that are really personal to me which is like saying, I can trust you with my life. Brothers and sisters of Berea, and that's what I have been able to say every, every day that I've been here for three years. I can trust you with my life. Consider the past two years at Berea alone, when we have gone through an explosion of prayers going from our church up to heaven. How? How did prayer explode here? Growth group ministries. Men's and women's ministries meeting monthly with one another. Prayer has been exploding here. People choosing to give prayer requests. Other brothers and sisters receiving those requests and then choosing to pray for them. Do you see how God delights in this? Do you see how much this means to the building of relationships? This is love. Just by making the request, Paul is showing his love and communicating that his confidence is in them, is in their love for him. He has that great confidence. Who do you give your prayer request to? Who knows how to pray for you? Are you humble enough to acknowledge That you're needy. That's what your prayer requests say. They say that you're humble enough to acknowledge that you're needy. By the way, whose list list do you have to pray for? Who are you praying over? What are they asking of you? Can you think of those prayer requests in your mind? 
Giving and getting prayer directly communicates confidence and, and love in the brothers in Christ, in Christ. From prayer, Paul moves to a second command that shows his confidence in the brothers. The second command is greet the brothers. He says in verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Paul gives this command, then he tells them how it should be done with a holy kiss. Now to each their own, okay? To each their own. Don't need any holy kissing going around here. Clearly this is, is going to be driven by culture, but don't miss the command. The command is to greet, and the expectation is that it happens in person. It is the case that Christianity is a contact sport. It takes place within inside of a six-foot radius. It takes place with a hug. It takes place with a, a sitting right next to shoulder to shoulder and sharing those prayer requests. I'm thankful for Berean Bible Church and the fearlessness of our group in gathering and meeting. And I want you to know that I will personally need to, over the course of the next 10 days, take all the hugs and handshakes that you could possibly give to me to soak in every last bit of love that I can receive from you because it is rich and deep love that is here. Paul's command shows that his trust is in the Thessalonians, that they were really being taught of God to love one another. His confidence and certainty is this. He wants them to gather. He commands them to gather, virus or no virus, and that they will greet each other with a holy kiss. And you can only imagine how much bacteria sharing goes on with that. You might say, yuck, but I would sure hope that you can see love in that. And moreover, I would hope that you'd practice it. Practice gathering. Practice greeting. Practice meeting. Practice kissing. No, we don't, don't practice kissing. <laughs> Christianity requires in-person attendance. There is no virtual membership in Christianity. You cannot be a virtual member of Berean Bible Church. I won't accept that. Paul has confidence in these brothers and commands that they meet and greet. This takes us to a third command that Paul shows them his confidence in their love. Command number three is brothers read. Read what? Verse 27. He says, brothers read. He says, I adjure you in the Lord. I command you in the Lord that you have this letter read to all the brethren. You know, this word adjure only shows up three times in the Bible. And what it means is I put you under oath. I, I, I put a command to you. Why does Paul use such a strong word? What is behind the strength of the command? Number one, the power of the scriptures. Paul knew that he was writing scripture, and he knows scriptures need to be preached from a man of God from a pulpit to believers in Christ who are gathered, physically gathered. Why physically gathered? Well, the second part of the strength of this command comes from the need for corporate accountability because you can't deny what you heard this morning. You can't deny what you heard last week or what you'll hear next week. You're sitting next to each other, and it buries inside of you accountability. John MacArthur says public reading was the foundation of spiritual accountability. So we gather. We sit under the reading, teaching, and preaching of the Word of God. Warren Wearsby says we are to read the Word personally, but we also need to hear the Word in fellowship of the local church, for the one experience helps balance out the other. You got two months of reading it on your own at home, right? How much do we need to hear and be convicted and have this corporate accountability. And then third, the third part of the strength of this command comes from Paul's love and confidence in these men, these brothers and sisters in Christ. He would not command them to do anything except that he is confident that they are both able and willing to do this with profound love. Able and willing in profound love. Paul is confident in the love of the brothers. His commands to them clearly indicate that. And I just think, what a blessing. What a blessing it is to be commanded. Can you see from this farewell that commands are a blessing? I think about the, the commands of police officer, officers. Stop. That command from a police officer. Do you see the blessing in that? I do. There's great blessing. Do you see the blessing when parents are giving commands to their children? Do you see the blessing when employers are directing the activities of their employees Children and employees are blessed when they're told what to do because commands assume the best of them that they can hear, listen, and obey. And in so doing, they will be rewarded with more love because of their obedience. Commands are loving. Paul commands the Thessalonians. And in commanding them, he is causing them to say in their hearts, we are known by Paul. He respects us. He knows that we listen to him. He knows that we will obey him. He knows our great love for him. Indeed, Paul has great confidence in the brothers' love, and that confidence in their love made for a grand goodbye. His commands told them of his love and affections. All that was left to do was to sign off with grace, and Paul offers the greatest grace in the closing of this letter, just like he did in the opening. In verse 28, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What did we learn from Paul's farewell to the friends in Thessalonica? What did we gain 
to add grace to our own goodbye. We get this. When you go to say goodbye, you lean on these two foundations. Number one, you lean on the certainty of God's ability. And number two, you lean on the confidence that you have in your brother's love. I would hope that you would think on these two foundations. How solidly do you stand on them? I just gave you three certainties of God's ability. What more do you know about God? What do you know about his ability? What else do you you know God is able to do? That God is doing through you and through others right now. What do you know about God? And also, what do you know about love? How do you show love to others? How would others believe your love that you were trying to project to them? What can you and will you do to demonstrate confidence that you have in your brother's love? I hope you take those questions with you and reflect on them. It is the case that this is my last message at Berean Bible Church for some time. And as I look to wrap up this ministry season here with you, I want to tell you all that my heart is completely full because of all of your love. My heart is full of love for you and all the love that I have received from you truly every day in Arroyo Grande has been a blessing to me and my family. Your love is the blessing that we will treasure all of the rest of the days of our lives. My heart is not only full with love, my heart is full of excitement. For all that the Lord is doing here, you have solid men of God preaching and teaching to you. Pastor Eric and Rod and Don, they're shepherds. You have many hands that make lovely music. You have gifted teachers and leaders. You have many servants who maintain the ministries of our church as well as the humble little facility doing all the cleaning for us. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you and I'm excited for what the Lord is doing here that God has given you such a treasure. I pray that you soak it all in. Father God in heaven, cause them to see the treasure that is in their midst. I pray that you would saturate your life with the fellowship activities here, the meeting and the greeting, the coming early, the staying late, and the asking of good questions. And I adjure you in the presence of the Lord to give your love and life to this body of believers. The Lord is building this church. And will it come with departures and crying and tears? Absolutely it will. If we do it right, it absolutely will. Tears tell the story of true love. I fully expect them to continue to flow from my face for many weeks. But we have this hope that the joy we have known is not seen its fullness yet. The love we share will return and it will be full, complete, and eternal at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the cloud. Whether we are blessed to share more of this life together or we meet for eternity at the rapture, know this. My certainty is placed in God's ability. And I have great confidence in the love of my brothers and sisters in Christ at Berean Bible Church. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ always be upon you. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, great joy attends the fellowship of Berean Bible Church because of your gift of salvation, because of your grace, and because of your love. This fellowship is filled because of the work of one man, Jesus Christ, dying on a cross to pay for the sins of all those in here who believe. Lord, I pray that this congregation would be set apart for powerful works unto you in this community. I pray that you would teach continually my brothers and sisters how to love one another and to look for and long for the glorious day of your arrival and all of our gathering together in the cloud. I pray that you give Pastor Eric and Rod and Don wisdom in leading and shepherding the brothers and sisters and that the teaching from his lips would continue to flow with grace and joy and love and strength as it has for nine years. Foster in these brothers and sisters a strong fellowship, Lord God, that they would continue to meet and greet one another and that they would continue to pour out their lives and love one another. So much so, so much so that their love would be known far and wide and that you might be 
glorified in them. And that they, in this community, through their evangelistic efforts and activities and the giving of their lives to their neighbors, might see more justified in your presence, that you would save many through them. Make them servants, Father. Give them joy in all of their work. Give them joy in their worship and make them prayerful. Father God, make them prayerful. Make them pray Calvinistic prayers that declare your sovereignty over men. Have them pray for each other. Have them pray for their brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and their children. And Father God, have them not forget the Jones family. Father, have them pray for us as well. We love this fellowship. We love what you've given. And we thank you for the time in your word today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.